Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Disney World edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. Anna Shemansky is here. Jordan Weissman of Slate is here. Yep. Hello. And I wanted to, I wanted to do this thing where I was like, welcome to the business and finance news of 10 years ago, because right now is one of those weeks where everyone is like, it's 10 years since the beginning of the financial crisis. But there have been many begins, begin, yes. beginnings of the financial crisis. And I feel like maybe... Uh, BNP Paribas subprime fund freezing redemptions is not the only or even main beginning of the financial crisis. So let us know on Slate Money at Slate.com. Number one, when do you think the financial crisis really happened? Like, when did it really kick into gear? When was the big day? And number two, is this something we should even be talking about 10 years later? Can I just say that September 15th, the day Lehman Brothers fell, I had been on vacation for a week, and I came back, I opened the door to the office, and one of the guys I work with was on the floor throwing papers up in the air and was like, welcome back! (laughs) (laughs) That's true story. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I was I was in Las Vegas at a blogging convention with Jim Ledbetter, who just launched this website for Slate called The Big Money. And we both kind of looked at each other and said, we should be anywhere except for in Vegas. right? Now. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, we are not going to talk about the financial crisis this week. We will probably talk about it at some point in... Um, 2018 or possibly 2017, depending on when would make sense. We are going to talk about lots of Disney. Yes. Um, because yeah, there was a lawsuit Disney settled, and there is a, they have pulled their stuff from Netflix. And I am going to tell you a secret about well, it's not very, it's not a very big secret about Disney HQ. Um. Well, I have been because I briefly kind of sort of not really worked for Disney. Um, 
but yeah, I feel like the place to begin mm -hmm. is one hundred and seventy-seven million dollars. Yes, which is Anna. What is one hundred and seventy-seven million dollars? We're going to start with it's. Uh, it's not even a numbers round. It's just a number. That appears to be the amount that Disney had to pay to settle the lawsuit with BPI. They, BPI, they paid more. Or, right. So, wait. So, that's the amount that it cost Disney. We'll, we'll yeah. come to the total amount of the lawsuit in, the, in a minute. But what or who is BPI? It's a Beef Products Inc. 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 Yes, Beef, beef Products, products Inc. Inc. And BPI, Beef Products Inc., um, does basically exactly what it says on the tin. And they make... Beef products. <laughs> beef products, or what did they call it? Lean textured beef. Finely textured beef protein. Finely textured Which beef I had protein. to write down because I couldn't remember. It. AKA Pink Slime. Pink Slime. And people have been writing about Pink Slime for a while, and ABC, which is a television network, which is a subsidiary of Disney, um, did a whole story about this pink slime well, on the television. A series of stories, yeah. And they they kind of went on a crusade about it and maybe went a little over the top. And, <laughs> Perhaps. And, and the um, and BPI, uh, and this these, these stories were indubitably damaging yes. to yes. BPI. They were also indubitably factually correct. There was, the, the stories are still up on the website there has been no corrections and no one as far as i can tell has been able to point to any statements of fact in these stories which have not stood up yeah i mean i you know i i'm starting to vacillate on that a little bit um so the issue here is that again so there there's we should actually explain what this product is right mm -hmm. because i don't think everyone's been on like <laughs> not everyone's been hanging on to every detail in this case um but so it's basically beef trimmings it's it is real meat it, it's kind of the stuff right, left it comes over. from a cow anyway. yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't quite go so far as to call it real meat. i mean it's meat well, it's it beef i mean it's yeah. beef trimming yeah it's it's, it's, it's ammoniated beef trimming yeah which I, like which would not which means they don't have bacteria do you know how much stuff in our in our meat yeah, like, <laughs> like in our meat system that gets treated with ammonia like that is pretty not, much everything yeah i mean chickens like all sorts of things or i think chickens are maybe chlorine or something some shit but anyway like i mean it, it, but it, is, good. <laughs> it is beef trimmings and it goes through a process where they essentially throw it around a um centrifuge thank you a centrifuge i had a moment there they put in a centrifuge to remove the fat to make it leaner and that's where you get the lean beef product whatever and so this there there this was an Okay, and then they figured out how to clean it, how to kill off all the microbes. Using by, by throwing ammonia all over Well, no, ammoniated gas, but it's to get rid of the E. coli, so you don't die from your hamburger. And so, and then they put it into hamburger. Yeah, so like a lot of ground beef that you were buying in a grocery store had this product in it that was, you know, lean, finely textured beef product. And so most people didn't know that because it wasn't labeled. And there was this one very angry USDA scientist who decided this stuff was not meat and it did not belong in ground beef. And he wrote a memo calling it pink slime. So that it came from an actual USDA scientist with an ax to grind who really, he just had philosophical oppositions to this stuff. And ABC really took that and ran with it and used the phrase 
pink slime apparently 137 times. And then it created this, you know, it created sort of a, a consumer's movement to get this stuff out of hamburgers and out of school lunches. Right. And, and, it's and, the, and the Even effect though, on BPI was yeah. certainly negative. Like BPI wound up selling a lot less pink slime because people didn't want pink slime in their... Three of their plants closed, like 700 people lost their jobs. And also, it's important to point out there is not actually anything wrong with this product in the idea, in the sense that it doesn't hurt you in any way. Right. But then again, there was nothing in the ABC reports which said that it did. Except to keep calling it pink slime over and over. Well, so this, to- is, this is the thing. Exactly. They called it s- slime has a meaning. Yeah. To say that people wouldn't assume your product is disgusting when you call it slime over and over <laughs> and over again is ridiculous. No, I... It- is disgusting. It's just not unsafe. And they didn't say it was unsafe. They said it was pink slime, which is a thing that it was referred to as. And the upshot of all of this is that BPI loses a bunch of money and then sues ABC and Disney saying, you put out these reports and we lost money. Now, for my like for me, I would say, well, that is how journalism works you know you you surface true information you put the true information out to the public the public reacts to the true information the world changes according to the public reaction and then you know three cheers for journalism um the bpi on the other hand is basically saying you can't do journalism if it causes us any damage and we want 5.4 billion dollars please yes and they so they well okay and so here is why like i say i'm, I'm a little bit torn about this because what they did is they went and sued in North Dakota because they're based there, 20 miles from where their plants were. And North Dakota's Trump country, among other things, which we, you know, at Trump wasn't an issue when they first sued. But, like, they, you know, this is a part of the world that is or a part of the country that's not particularly friendly to the media. Um, they were very much on their home turf and they went to trial with it. And midway through the trial, uh, I guess ABC saw the writing on the wall and decided it's time to settle for, you know, a hundred and. $77 million at least. That's what they're paying. And then probably their insurers are paying more, it appears. And so I'm a little frustrated because on the one hand, this is apparently a story that ABC still stands by. They have not taken it, it is down. It's a story yeah, that yeah. ABC They have not taken it down. They have not corrected it. They have not done anything to it. There is nothing wrong with the story. And yet they have decided to settle for $177 million. Well, well, again, and let's stop saying $177 million. They have settled for substantially more than at least, $177 million. At least $177 million. Pro- and probably more, or definitely more than that. We just don't know exactly how much more. And so, to me, their decision to to bow out of a case for a story they still stand by puts a huge target on the backs of basically all media. I really hate the way ABC has handled this. I don't know if they, you know, it's hard for, again, I feel like their reporting was over the top and using the phrase pink slime over and over again does, I yeah, I think to some extent, yeah, it kind of created a false impression that this wasn't beef. Like that's kind of fundamental. And they had someone in one of the episodes say, yeah. most people wouldn't consider this meat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I, I'm, so, Me too. I'm part of most people. And- I don't know if, I don't know, maybe, but like it's, it's still, they stood by it and then they settled the case for a ton of money. And so that sends a message to a lot, to that sends a message to every would-be litigant, every angry business that even uh, that a a deep pocketed entertainment company that uh, even if it is a viable target for a lawsuit can be intimidated can be shook down even if they wrote a story that they think is true and so that is disturbing to me that part of it and yeah so number 1 truth really ought to be an absolute defense in these kind of cases number 2 
And, and as it should have been an absolute defense in the case which brought down Gorka Media Group, you know, when Hulk Hogan sued them for saying something true about him, and then it basically destroyed the whole company and destroyed the whole company for a sum much lower than one hundred seventy-seven million dollars. Well, I the, did, it um, wasn't a that wasn't a defamation case. It was a, we, we can argue that was an time. invasion yeah. of privacy yeah. case. But but the point yeah. was, in neither case was there any dispute over the facts of the matter, and. If the facts are true, you should be able to report them. Um, but much, much more importantly than that is that if you are a company which commits journalism, you should, add, and especially if you're a company which commits journalism and you have the size and the liquidity and the resources that Disney has, then you should totally defend that journalism um, rather than rolling over and settling cases. There was much talk before this uh, case went to trial of it being appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. There was a huge number of people who expected that the sort of anti-media North Dakota jury would find against Disney and that Disney would appeal and then they might win on appeal and then it would get appealed by BPI. And there was this was just the first step in a long series of appeals and cases and stuff. And... So this idea that Disney settled because they suddenly thought that the jury was going to find against them just that doesn't ring true to me. They that was never the idea that like the jury verdict was going to be the end of it. And also perhaps in this instance they didn't have a great case. Like I don't disagree with you that I do think this is disturbing in terms of what it could mean moving forward for journalism. I completely agree with that especially in this environment. Completely agree with that. Having said that, I don't think this story by ABC was particularly responsible journalism. But that is not the bar, okay? I, you cannot say that every single piece of journalism needs to be found particularly responsible by a jury in North Dakota. Otherwise, you should lose $177 million. That is not how freedom of speech and the Constitution works. We have the right to say things even if they're not responsible. Well... Uh, actually, at some point, there is reckless disregard for the truth. Like that is but that, that is the was, standard. That was not argued. Well, no, no, no one was, was arguing. No, they that. were arguing. They, yeah, that. they were arguing that. They and were. I, yeah. And again, I, I don't, I, I don't fundamentally disagree, but I also do think this case, like, if you look at the details of the reporting, for them to argue that they that the ABC story didn't suggest that this was an unsafe product, that this was a product that no one should use. That is exactly what the pro what it did. And it caused irreparable harm. And there wasn't anything unsafe about the product. I, I really they didn't come out and ex explicitly say this product is unsafe. But when everything in the context of the show is to suggest that uh, that's uh, that's a little tough. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, number one, there was clearly not reckless disregard for the truth. This entire series was lawyered up to the eyeballs before it came out there was nothing in there which anyone claimed to be untrue the one thing which abc clearly had was huge respect for the truth and they wanted to make sure and nail down every single assertion that they made then except why, except they kept calling it slime why that was the so if, if, if really all they cared about was was telling the public that this product is in their meat why didn't they just say finely textured beef protein a like ammoniated beef product is in your meat. Because the reason they didn't say that is because obviously no one's going to listen to that story. We all know that. Right. People will listen to a story that says pink slime. Right. Yeah. 
I just I So what's wrong with that? Why not make the story that people want to listen to if the story that people want to listen to is true? Well, because again and this actually is part of the lawsuit, is they're like you describe something as slime that literally the textbook definition is like a liquid. Like it's right. like not a, like when you say slime, you're imagining something like that's sort of it's pretty seeps. slimy. It's, it's, it's ish. I mean it's 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 finely tech it, it's fi- it's like what you get if you put a sa- a fine ground sausage. It's probably right. the, if you look you at know? any type of processed meat, it's kind of gross. Yeah. I mean it just like right. to and, me and I'm not, I feel like the I'm angry. I'm the ang- general public has a right to know that a lot of processed meat is kind of gross. This is a Do true fact. Do people not know that? Do people think that the meat that's in a lot of like these products is fantastic and doesn't include things that I think they a lot I think Americans in general are good at not thinking about that kind of thing and then when you force them to look at it you're like they're like ooh that's kind of gross and that's good we're learning things Wait, so, but it uh, looks gross it yes. wasn't I didn't actually have any negative qualities in terms of safety Wait, but so, no one said it did Felix I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out who you're mad at exactly so, I'm mad at well, Disney for okay, settling the case yes I'm mad at okay I'm mad at Disney too we agree on that that especially because they stood by their story if they hadn't stood by their story then god knows but it's bizarre to what they have done in this case is very bizarre to me. Are you mad? But who are you mad at the way the law is structured? Are you mad at the company? At uh, we don't know how the law is structured because it never got appealed. We don't. We never heard the arguments. Um, and yeah, I feel I actually have faith in the American jurisprudence system, and I think that if they had had the courage of their convictions, they would have wound up having to pay nothing. Okay. Okay, I see. So you're just pissed that Disney did not have the courage of its convictions to take this all the way. And I think, and, and uh, you know, ultimately, I worry that Disney is not a news organization. It's a large multinational entertainment conglomerate and doesn't really care about journalism. Yeah, I think that's probably that's, probably, that's true. probably true. Like it's not, uh, and to them it was pro. In the end, I am guessing they made a cost benefit, or yeah. you know, they they made a risk assessment and said, what are the chances that we lose this case even on appeal, mm-hmm. and what are the chances as a result we get stuck with a billion plus judgment from a bunch of crazy North Dakotan ju- jurors? And they said that chance is worth that that probability is too high for us to continue this case rather even even if we support this story. I, I imagine that was the conversation. I don't no, know for I, sure, I mean, but I, I would. I would be I would certainly imagine that the decision to settle the case was made over the objections of anyone at ABC that this was a decision made at like the Disney level probably, and probably, and that yeah. they're saying you know we can settle for 177 million. We can bury this in a 10Q footnote. No one's going to notice it. Whoops! They notice it. <laughs> um, Turns out, and um, and then. Um, you know, if we do that, we have a hundred percent chance of losing one hundred seventy-seven million. But then we also have a zero percent chance of losing a billion, and that's worth it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, which I just think is not the way that any respectable news organization should ever behave. I think I agree with. I, I, I'm just going to push back on that a tiny bit because, in the case of a news organization that actually could face an existential threat from a billion-dollar judgment, I do think that. There is some responsibility to not go out of business if you can afford to help it. Disney did not have that concern here. Disney, again, this is and this is what pisses me off so much is even if it had been a billion dollar judgment, Disney could have survived it. Like this is not a company like they they are one of the few companies that should be in a position to defend journalistic ideals. And as you're saying, they clearly are not. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's stick with Disney because they actually put out press releases rather than just burying things in the footnote of their um, earnings report. Um, They're very big on streaming services all of a sudden. And um, one of the things which you don't really think about very much when you're on Netflix is trying to work out who the copyright owners are for all of the various different I know that's all I'm thinking about that you're watching, watching. You know, there's a bunch of movies, there's a bunch of TV shows. At the beginning of the movies and the TV shows, there's some long list of producers, most of whom you've never heard of, and none of which is actually relevant to who owns the copyright. And now what has happened is that Disney, who does own the copyright to a certain subset of that content has decided that they are no longer going to uh, license it to Netflix because they are going to set up their own rival streaming service and put it on that instead. And like my first reaction to this is like, oh my God, do I really need to try and work out who the copyright owner is when I'm trying to watch something on my Apple TV? Um, But it's not about me. (laughs) It's all about (laughs) Disney trying to make money. Yeah. I mean, this is a little bit frightening. If you were the kind of person who was hoping you were going to be able to get away with, you know, draw, you know, cutting the cable cord, um, this is a big step towards just like the total fragmentation of not just cable, but of the streaming services themselves. I mean, you know, Disney is the world's biggest entertainment company. It's the Marvel movies. It's Star Wars movies. It's the Disney Channel. It's just so much content. It's uh, ESPN. It's ESPN. ESPN Sorry, yeah. I forget. It's ESPN. Yeah. And so... You know, the fact that they're saying, okay, we're going to have our own little gated, you know, net, you know, streaming service, uh, you know, for our shows, for our movies, and you're only going to be getting it if you pay us directly. You know, it just, it seems like this is the beginning of, um, Basically, not being able to save any money by cutting the right. Cable I mean, cord. it could eventually become much more expensive because yeah. now that streaming technology has improved, and also now that consumers are used to watching television in this way, it makes total sense that a lot of these content producers are going to say, "Well, why am I giving this to Netflix? Why don't I just have my own service?" Yeah, and this is you know, and this is one of the reasons why Netflix itself is banking so hard on its own original content because, right. and just say turning itself into a streaming HBO because they they know they might not be able to rely on other provi- content providers. But I. Okay, so this bit where like it could turn into something which theoretically perhaps might turn might might become more expensive than the cable bill is not something which worries me. Okay, um, because for most people it won't. Right, for most people you'll have one or two or three or four things which you're paying you know seven or eight or nine or fifteen dollars a month for, and even then you're still not up at cable bill levels. And the point is there that what you are doing is you're actually paying for stuff you want to watch, unlike cable, where you are paying for a huge amount of stuff you don't want to watch. And I feel like everyone who's ever dreamed of an a la carte, um, you know, pay only for what you want to see system, like their utopia is arriving. 
Yeah, probably. Pro- I, I don't know, Felix. Like, there's a lot of stuff on cable you don't think you want to watch. <laughs> like, but then you tune into Naked and Afraid for the first time, <laughs> and you're like, wait a second. They knew. They knew I wanted this before I knew I wanted it. This, yeah. <laughs> so, I, like, I mean, I do think that the age of the big bundle is is probably ending and essentially cable companies are just going to become internet companies. Yeah. And then, but I do think the idea that you're only going to have one or two of these, I don't know. I think that I don't, I mean, honestly, I have not paid a cable bill in a long time because I haven't had cable in many years. I don't even know what cable costs, but if you, if you start to add it up, I don't know. I, I guess to me, the, the, what I think is also interesting is in terms of what this means for Netflix future. Because I think Netflix is in a very bad position compared to many of its now competitors. And I, I'm weirdly slightly more sanguine about this. Um, the, I, the, the, the Netflix business model when it first started streaming stuff never made any sense to me. Because what you had was Netflix would pay a bunch of money to license content. Yeah. And then it would sell subscriptions. And the only way it could sell subscriptions would be if it paid whatever the content copyright owners wanted to charge. And ultimately, they would always charge Netflix more than Netflix could make in subscriptions because there was nothing stopping them from just raising the price and raising the price. And Netflix had to pay whatever they were being asked to pay because they that was the only place they were getting content. Now... In the new world of Netflix buying, um, they they just signed a big deal with the guy who did Kick Us, you know, yeah, Miller. Miller. Yeah, they they actually bought a comic book. Yeah, yeah they, uh, they, they've got that. They, they've got a whole. They catalog. own a bunch of Marvel TV shows, which they get to keep now, even though Marvel Marvel is part of Disney. Um, they are making a bunch of original content. Um, what that does is it gives them finally a little bit of negotiating leverage with the content, with the copyright owners, and saying they can say, you know what, if you want to go off and put Star Wars on its own streaming channel, you go ahead and do that because we have other places we can get content. In fact, we can just make it ourselves. People are the still going to watch Jessica Jones. Is yeah. that making that type of original content is quite expensive. And if you look at Netflix's last earnings statements, everybody talked about the top line revenue growth or subscriber growth. But if you actually looked, they took on a lot more debt. They also are eating up their cash. They And because they're taking on more debt, that means they're also paying more in interest payments. Their pre-tax income is down. Their model doesn't make sense until at some point they can really increase prices. Because they have no other sources of revenue, as opposed to some of these other more established companies that do. Well, okay, so, so this is actually interesting because now they've bought a, a comics company, um, and now they are making movies which have theatrical releases. Um, they are beginning to branch out into alternative revenue sources, like they are getting theatrical revenue from movies. They are get they are selling comic books. They are doing you know other things which bring in revenue. These are very nascent. And you're absolutely right that if you're looking at, you know, this quarter's earnings or last quarter's earnings or the current balance sheet, yeah, things don't look good for Netflix. But then again, they almost never have. Like, Netflix has never had amazing earnings. The question is whether they can get somewhere powerful and important in the future, you know, as, as the slogan has it, whether they can become HBO before HBO becomes Netflix. And, and I think that 
this announcement from Disney is weirdly a ratification of their model. And we are going to find ourselves increasingly in a world where ESPN has its own streaming channel. Disney's going to have a non-ESPN channel. We're going to have the HBO Go. We're going to have Netflix. And people are going to pick and choose. And Netflix got there first. It has a first mover advantage. Is that going to make it, is that going to justify its current crazy market cap now you can argue about not that not even a little but, bit but like, 200p I think, <laughs> but i think the you know the idea that on some level this is actually a sustainable business is now something which is believed not only by disney but by many many other companies as well, well i mean not only by netflix doing this as part of a larger business strategy is sustainable doing only this we still don't know if that's but sustainable. I, I think Felix, but who's saying I think they're Felix, doing only this? Yeah, as I say, Felix's point, I think, is that they I, are they are in the early stages of moving on beyond just having the streaming channel. They're they are going. They are hoping to look a little bit more like Disney, right? You know, a little. Yeah. It, at one point, people were saying they want to be HBO, and now they're saying they want to be Disney. Right, but they're going to have yeah. to get there by taking on a lot more debt and spending a lot more money in a, in the way that their other competitors are not, and that's where I think they're not in the greatest position. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So yeah, this this show yeah does not give investment advice. No, <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, no, we can we can agree that probably Netflix looks like a kind of terrifying equity play. But there's more to businesses than equity. There's also things like the broader stakeholder and employee experience that we talked a little bit about last week when we were talking <laughs> this about is quite a segue. And there's also things like how how happy a your employees when they're when they come into work and do they have you know Stumptown cold brew coffee on tap and this kind of this thing. is the key to felix's happiness this is basically the key to felix's happiness um what's one of the most interesting little baby stories which um came up this week on john gruber's podcast is the experience of apple's employees in their amazing new five billion dollar headquarters in cupertino california where the obviously apple is not trying to economize here in terms of like spending less money there's not trying to squeeze as many people as possible into a small office because the rents are so high you know money was basically no object on this hq and yet what has happened is that a bunch of Apple employees have wound up in open plan offices, which by all accounts, they don't much like. And in fact, often are refusing to move into the new headquarters because they prefer the old offices. Yeah, they are just working at, these are just like highly, highly paid engineers working at long tables, one after another, which I kind of like. It's yeah. democratizing. They have to deal with like their annoying co-workers the same way we bloggers do. Like, we, and we had this, you know, we saw this with Goldman Sachs when it moved its headquarters from Broad Street over to West Street in lower Manhattan that suddenly, every, you know, 
thousands of people who used to have offices no longer had offices and they were right. unhappy and, about this. But also like the traditional trading floor model yes. is also open seating. Yeah, I was going to say that made a little bit more sense yeah. with Goldman yeah. Sachs because that was like the, you know, that well, is no, the image but, of the bond trading exactly. floor. No, but like I, I think this is important. A trading floor needs to be big and open. A trading floor has always been big and open. And yeah. then you have a bunch of investment bankers who have no need for big and open trading floors and who aren't traders. And suddenly they find themselves in these like open plan offices with you know, phone booths you can go into when you need to make a private conversation and all of this kind of stuff that we're all living in these days. And they're like, no, this is horrible. It was much nicer when I had an office. You see, I've never had an office. I've only known the world of cubicles and open floor plans. And so I just don't see it. I don't know. Is it really, Felix, have you gone from an office to an open floor? Has you, Anna, like... So, yeah, I mean, I I actually have. And I know, like, because um, my last job was the first job that I had that was, again, it was a trading floor setup. And I'll be perfectly honest, when I first went there, I was kind of like, I'm not sure about this. Also, the we were in a little bit of an interim place. So my boss sat like four inches from me, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, so that, that, was a little, <laughs> that was a little close. But when we moved into our better um, arrangement, I actually liked it because it really does create a sense of, camaraderie and you always have rooms you can go to so if you have to do certain type of work you can do it there but it's also great for information flow i actually wouldn't want to go back i really liked it so to bring this back to disney sorry (laughs) (laughs) um the thing which fascinates me about about disney is i've i've been to disney's headquarters in burbank california and i mean it's an amazing piece of architecture there it's this huge big colonnaded building with seven columns along the front and each column is in the shape of a dwarf <laughs> like <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarves okay. um, and you walk in and there's all of these amazing stills from Snow White and from Fantasia there's you know Star Wars bits and pieces there's it and it is the classic sort of um, carpeted offices you know where like secretaries have their own separate offices outside the other offices where you have to go through layers and layers of gatekeepers before you meet the important people. And and just the amount of square feet per person is probably larger than the typical Manhattan apartment. <laughs> isn't that, But isn't that like, that's very much like entertainment industry, right? Like old school entertainment is about like giving, like creating an aura of authority and just like power around the executives. And like, you can't do that if you're all in a bullpen together, right? Like it just, that's not, I mean, maybe you can, I don't know. But to me, that seems like that's just a a part of the culture industry that like is not going to ever have people, you know, producers are not going to be working at long tables. You can't like curse wildly at someone on the phone while you're all sitting together in a room. Well, I think you can and you do. And I've seen a bunch of like television production setups where that is exactly what happens. But the it's kind of interesting to me that like Disney spent $7.4 billion buying Pixar from Steve Jobs. And the and when that happened, you basically had this like very big lumbering old school entertainment company adopting the methods of this much more sort of northern california tech-based company and it's an interesting fight and i feel like in a weird way apple has got out a little bit too far in front of its skis that when employees don't like working in a certain way and i think most people who've had offices and have worked in open plan offices ultimately 
they like the idea of having their own space. And every time that anyone's tried to create, you know, a cool, sexy, modern, hot desking situation, it never really works very well. That that if you want to really do well by your employees, which is clearly what the intention was when in New Apple Campus, then you should listen to how they want to work, and they don't, and they don't want to work this way. Although I don't know, like this report, I would also say like there weren't a lot of details in this. Yeah, and but it but it rings true. It rings true, but that defi- doesn't. So this report said there were like certain teams, certainly exactly, but yeah. the that- vast majority of people I imagine are working in the new setup which would then suggest that they're okay with it. No, that doesn't suggest that they're okay It just okay means they couldn't get, they didn't have enough heft at the company to get their own building. Yeah. <laughs> that That's was... certainly possible. I just, I do think also everybody hates change. So you are almost always moving from what was older, which was cubicles and offices into what is newer, which is open seating. And I agree, there have been lots of studies that show that open seating isn't as great as everybody thinks it is. And I and there's probably certainly some truth to that. But I do think for certain types of work, it makes sense. For other types, it doesn't. Wait, so I have a question. When I was reading this, is Apple's headquarters... By open seating, are we talking about just like actually you sit down wherever the hell you want on any given day and just no, put no, your stuff they, down? No, you have pods. It's very convoluted. Okay. But like within pods, you know, you're working in close proximity in an open floor plan to other members of what is presumably your team. Okay. Right. Because I do think it's important for people to have their own space. Yeah. I think that I do think is important, but I don't know. And I also think that. I believe there's also been some work done that shows that younger people are actually more okay with working in this way. I mean, that's because that's all we've known. Right. Which, know, but that's, that goes back to my whole idea yeah. where I think some of this also has to do with just change. And I mean, the thing which I've noticed is, well, there are two big things that I've noticed in open seating systems. One is that you see a huge number of people who are just constantly working with headphones on. It's like this way of cutting yourself off from your the people around you as much as you can the headphone has become like the universal um do not disturb sign do not disturb sign and like that's not an efficient way of doing that especially for people like me who don't actually like wearing headphones and then the other thing that i've seen is a huge move from like large quantity like large amounts of screen real estate and people having like two or three monitors in front of them to people just working on laptops and I think that the reason for that, again, is like a privacy thing that if you have a whopping great big screen in front of you and you're part of an open plan office, everyone can see what you are working on, which is also weirdly uncomfortable. And so people like hunch over their laptops, again, for privacy more than for convenience. And I feel like people also- are trying to build little bits of privacy in where like they are well, while the architects are trying to design them out. And I think it's important and it shouldn't be designed out. I Again, I think that the jury is still out on whether open seating is going to ultimately be a net positive or net negative, but I don't think it is as negative as you are making it out to be. What's the argument for it being a net positive? I think the like there's a lot of utopian crap about how like it helps in terms of communication it does it really does i'm sorry there are certain like when you're i, I worked very close to the trader and yeah when you're been, working on the trading floor we understand the right. trading floor and i realize that that things. is a unique example yeah. but i imagine that that is not the only example no, but no, it, it is, it it is a very like you know when you're shit you're like shooting ideas back and forth with your co-workers yeah, and i've sure. also yeah. been at other places where they do not have this setup and frankly people don't stay on task. You look at a lot of computers and you see a lot of online shopping. So I'm not saying that that is the the only other thing that happens, but I do think this 
I, I realize you can be distracted on the one hand, but it can also keep you on task on the other. Again, I think there's a push and pull. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Numbers round! Um, Anna, I'm going, to, I'm going to go first this week because this is my favorite. This is an Anna number, and I, I want to make sure I get in there early so that you don't steal my number. Okay. It's um, $775 billion, which was earlier this week the official market capitalization of Mercantil Servicios Financieros, which is a Venezuelan bank. Oh. <laughs> the, um, the most valuable public company in the world was actually a, a Venezuelan bank, and the official stock market capitalization of the Venezuelan stock market was something like $3.4 trillion, which is more than the stock market capitalization of the entire German stock market. Um, this all, of course, having sure to how do they calculated that. with the official exchange rate. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I'm pretty sure I can see where this is going. Um, if you if you use the sort of unofficial black market exchange rate, then things start making a lot yeah. more sense. But that is what happens when you have like artificial exchange rates. You get weird artifacts like a 775 billion dollar <laughs> Venezuelan <laughs> bank. <laughs> Oh, uh, is it my turn? Yes. Uh, my number is 42. That's how high the VIX rose during the 2011 debt ceiling crisis when it wasn't clear if Congress was going to actually you know, pay its bills. <laughs> um, and, and the VIX, remember, is it, a measure of stock market volatility. Yes. It has nothing really to do with the bond market. No, but so the VIX, it's often referred to as just like the fear gauge, right? It's just like when people don't know what the fuck is going on um, in the world the VIX goes up, or that's supposed to be how it works. Currently, it's at 15. And I've been just asking people, why is just, just given how dysfunctional our politics are right now and the fact that in September, Congress is going to have to try and raise the debt ceiling, and we really don't know if they're going to be successful at it, why more people aren't betting on the VIX just shooting the hell up, given that we have very recent we, historical had, precedent for we've this. We've had like entire segments on like why is volatility low no but like market. this right now but i'm wondering how long did the vix stay at that elevated rate was yeah it no, like number one it wasn't there very long and number two of all the things to cause stock market volatility i feel like a debt ceiling crisis is probably not it like I can see why it would cause volatility in short-dated treasury bills, but why would it affect how much you want to pay for Apple stock? Because the the concern is that once the US breaches the debt ceiling, like no one knows what's true and what works anymore. Like just the like 
all of a sudden the right. U.S. the U.S. Treasuries are no longer are uncertain. Yeah, we we don't you no longer is the 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 uh, good faith and credit of the U.S. government a, a certainty in this world. Well, I see, and then again, I feel like we learned a lesson the last time around. The what you had weirdly and people didn't expect this, but this is what happened, and it kind of makes sense ex post is that you had a flight to quality trade that people were afraid about, you know, um, what this meant for assets. And they wound up selling risky assets like stocks and buying safe assets like treasury bills. And this is the one thing which you have to remember about the debt ceiling is that ultimately the United States is going to pay those bills. And even if it defaults, which it probably won't it probably won't default on treasury bills and even if it does default on treasury bills it will still wind up paying you know all of that in principal and interest plus probably statutory interest at seven percent which is much higher than you could get normally and there's no real risk of you losing any money if you buy treasury bills and i feel like in that sense the kind of oh my god a u.s government default would be the end of the world scenario is a little bit less scary than it used to be, although it's still pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, I'm still scared shitless of it. <laughs> but, but <laughs> like, since since like, we're on even, this subject, yeah, and you're the you're yeah. the polit- politics person here. Yeah, I always thought the problem with the debt ceiling, yeah, was that you know the Republicans that wanted to do mean things <laughs> like, to the Democratic administration. Yeah, if the government just brings forward a bill saying raise the debt ceiling the democrats will all vote for it you'll have a handful of republicans voting for it and then it will pass why is this not going to happen um because there are a lot of there are still a lot of republicans who want to attach it to cuts and there are questions about the administration's position because uh the office of management and budget director mick mulvaney is someone who really like during the last debt ceiling crisis he was agitating for not raising it without cuts he really really wants to attach uh you know, reductions in mandatory spending to this bill. And from what some people have read, his view is kind of prevailing in the White House right now and weirdly may even have the support of Gary Cohn, which is really unexpected to me. So the internal, whereas Steve Mnuchin is sitting there going, just raise the goddamn debt ceiling. So the di- internal dynamics of of the Trump administration are really bizarre here. No one really knows. And also it's unclear you know, if Paul Ryan is really going to want to have to rely on Democratic votes for this sort of thing, you know, John Boehner obviously was willing to do that back in back in the day. Uh, Ryan already feels his hold on power is sort of getting flimsy. So it, it, or it seems like he's worried about that. So it, it's, you know, so are you saying that there's if a lot of came to shove? Yeah. Paul Ryan would not introduce a bill which could only get passed on the basis of having a lot of Democrats. Uh, I think he, I think he would. I think just the issue is that there are a lot of there's even more uncertainty and like kind of uh, potential disaster points, <laughs> potential you know that or that than in the past. There's especially given the giant question marking over what the hell the White House thinks. Right. So, yeah. It's like there'll probably be a lot of sound and fury, and then they'll eventually raise it. But again, we've in the past year just seen things we've never anticipated seeing, so that does raise concerns. But the market does not appear to have those concerns. <laughs> not yeah, and my theory, as I say, is that even is that it's entirely possible that those concerns are priced in, and that the effect of the of a you know 
the debt ceiling not passing on the market would actually be much lower than people fear. But um, what's your number, Anna? My number is $350 trillion. That's a, that's possibly the largest dollar number we've ever had. on hey. um, So that's the amount of money connected to derivatives. Um, oh, it's a notional amount. Yes, it's the, not a real amount. It's okay. a notional amount. Fair enough. So this is the amount of money that's tied to um, with derivatives, loans, and mortgages tied to LIBOR. And I'm bringing this up because I've been wanting to for a few weeks just mention the fact that LIBOR is going to be phased out. Which I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, it's going to be a slow process, and it's not like it's just going away in 2021. It's just they aren't required to um, post it. And we, but this is a huge part of the market, and we at this point really don't know what's going to replace it. And it looks like there's also the possibility that we'll move into a much more fractured market in terms of multiple different reference rates. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's definitely going to be different. Felix has a allergy to LIBOR. I just like that right now I can see the hives like slowly rising from, which I don't blame him for. It's like the, I don't know, is LIBOR the, the you, you've talked about I mean, about part of the reason that they're doing away with it is because yeah. it was based, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be based on these survey results. It was supposed to be based on like transactions, but then it, because it became based on survey results, it was so easy to manipulate. Yeah. And, you know, we've obviously had a lot of those scandals. So, yeah, now, I mean, if a LIBOR goes away, yeah. that'll be great. If LIBOR well, doesn't go away, he, nothing will change. If something else comes along, fine. Again, like yeah. this is something I'm finding it difficult to really care well, about. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, so for I, like, concretely, given that this rate was already sort of manipulated and wasn't real to begin with in a lot of like, what, as a homeowner, do I have to care about this? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No, you really don't. Probably and, not. Yeah, I, no. I'll probably not. I'm just saying <laughs> it's the end of an era. Okay. It's not necessarily a good era, but it's the end of an era. Okay. Okay, well, I think that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, listen also to Trumpcast, which is hosted by Virginia Heffner and Jamel Bowie and the chairman of Slate himself, Mr. Jacob Weisberg, um, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Apparently, there's news about Trump. Who knew? So you can listen to that as often as you like. Find that at slate.com slash Trumpcast. If you want more content about the President of the United States, um, for everyone else, subscribe to us, listen to Trumpcast, s- write to us on slatemoney at slate.com. Thank Dan Schrader for producing because he does a great job. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. I hope, I hope it's home from Earth we go. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.